Hello, hello. Welcome to the White Lives Matter Always podcast, a.k.a. the Wilma podcast. Uh, my name that I gave myself is Sarah. Uh, I also uh, use the last name Good Medicine, um, which is something more of a recent development. Uh, something I didn't mention last time on our podcast either is that I use she, her pronouns. Uh, my sacred name is Abyskunaki, which means far shooter or shoots far. And uh, when I'm making art, I go by good medicine, all one word. What's good, y'all? It's nice to be here. Um, and I just wanted to explain that it took us a little bit of time to figure out uh, a name today. And uh, my esteemed colleague here is going to introduce himself in a sec. Uh, but we chose this name uh, because we wanted to draw attention to whiteness. And the whole purpose of us being on this podcast is diverse perspectives of whiteness. And that's not because... Uh, non-white people need to know about this. This is because white people in particular need to know about whiteness. And uh, mechanism of whiteness is to pretend it doesn't exist, uh, which is how that hegemony maintains, that dominant force maintains itself. So by using the name White Lives Matter Always, we're simply describing the society that we're in, and everybody else does not matter always. Uh, so we're trying to draw attention to that. Um, and so there's a little bit about the name. Thanks for tuning in here, and I'll uh, pass the mic over to uh, my friend here to introduce himself. And uh, he's also going to give us a lovely land acknowledgement. Thanks, Sarah. That uh, is quite nice of you. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Wright. Uh, uh, I'm a settler on, on this land, and I'm also a white male who happens to be racist. <laughs> I'm really glad that you said that, Steve. Um, you know, one of the things uh, between the last uh, recording and this recording is that we talked about um, was you using the word white culture. And uh, so maybe you want to tell us a little bit of why it was important for you to introduce yourself that way today. Uh, because, you know, some people might think we're silly gooses for starting off that way. And uh, <laughs> I would just add that uh, you're not the only racist on the mic here, uh, that uh, I'm also conditioned by racism and have racist thoughts and conditioning um, that I'm working on. Um, but in particular, um, it's important uh, that people who look like you acknowledge that they're also conditioned in that way. And so I'm just curious, you know, if you want to elaborate a little bit why that was important to you. Uh, to say that. Sure, and I think that before we, I answer that question, I just want to acknowledge that uh, we're on the land of the Treaty 7. Um, I am a visitor, uh, and I think it's really important for me to acknowledge the fact that I am a settler here, and, and uh, we need to recognize the, the people that actually live here for a long time. So shout out to all my Indigenous friends and to the rest of the Indigenous population. That's right. Thank you very much. For not kicking you out and putting you back on the Mayflower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, thanks for uh, doing that. One of the things we agreed to do, um, we talked a little bit about land acknowledgements last time. And I, and I don't know if I said this on the podcast, but I, uh, I have said this to Steve that I feel like land acknowledgements right now, they feel for me both necessary and annoying. Um, and part of that is because they become commodified. I know we did mention that on the last uh, recording here. Um, but, you know, 
to my understanding of, of land acknowledgements, they represent the relationships uh, that you have as a treaty partner. We're all treaty people, you know, we've probably heard that, but I really like, uh, shout out to Michelle Robinson, uh, local to Mokinstis, Calgary here. Um, you know, she really uh, highlighted how important it is to see ourselves as treaty partners. And Indigenous people, we already know uh, that the treaty um, is sort of, you know, why things ended up the way they did right now. But, um, you know, non-Indigenous people who live here, who are all settlers, you know, it doesn't matter what color you are, if you're not from this land here and you're uh, here, you are a settler, um, you know, you're a treaty partner, that's part of it. And not understanding that role, you know, feels quite problematic to me. So. I guess I know we didn't even plan to talk about this, but just off the cuff here, um, interested, you know, how do you feel identifying as a settler? Do you think that's a bad thing? Do you think, um, do you see people like squirm or resist the word, using the word settler, you know, similar to the way people resist the word white or? Uh, that's a good question. And I think for me, I'll answer it by, by explaining how I feel, right? And so, I'm very uh, aware and have been aware that, that I'm actually a visitor on this land. I'm a guest. Uh, I don't own this land. White people do not own this land. We're visitors. And uh, I think part of the disconnect for the land acknowledgement is, is people need to understand the meaning behind it, what that means. Um, I think we take it for granted in our whiteness that uh, we can just run around and occupy any piece of land we want. And all of a sudden it becomes ours and it's not that way. And so for me, it's a real eye opener, particularly when I'm out and about. I learn to appreciate where I am and the fact that I am white and I can't actually enjoy this. Mm. It's not necessarily honorable the way we sort of came to that conclusion, but nevertheless, it's, it's real. So uh. um, land acknowledgement for me is, is just acknowledging the fact that we are settlers. Yeah. We came and, and we conquered and then we feel that we have ownership and we don't. We need to give that back. I have a lot of friends, well, I wouldn't call them friends, but I have a lot of people who need to hear those words. So I'm gonna maybe make some introductions with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, going back to that other question, you know, uh, and one of our talking points for today um, is uh, I am racist, you know, um, one of the things that I observe about white uh, settler society, and we might even say a white supremacist society, um, is that there's a tendency to say that, you know, a racist is a bad person and that I am not a racist because I am not a bad person. So, you know, if somebody were to be talking with you uh, and they were to say that to you, you know, how would you respond to that? Well, I think, I think I identified as being a racist because I've actually benefited from my whiteness um, throughout my whole life. And it's something that we've taken for granted. And I think what's happened is, is that we sort of developed this persona that, uh, you know, especially the white liberals, that they were really nice people. <laughs> so nice. And, and really, uh, <laughs> racism is not nice. Yeah. It's real and it's really oppressive. And so, um, I have to acknowledge the fact that I benefited from my from my whiteness, absolutely. Uh, and I do have to acknowledge that, that 
I've discriminated against people that weren't white simply by being present yeah. and benefiting from that. And so for me, that land acknowledgement is just another piece of white racist attitudes um, that we pretend that we're acknowledging it, but we're not actually doing anything about it. No, not being a treaty partner at all. Talk is cheap, but whiskey costs money, right? <laughs> and so I think it's time we lean to, to learn to walk the talk here. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that. And, um, you know, speaking of uh, good white people, uh, you know, we're at uh, what I might call uh, Karen Central. This is sort of our next recording location. One of the ideas that we had for the Wilma podcast is that we go all over Treaty 7. So that's uh, being said, if you want us to come visit um, and record the podcast in your space, you know, you're from one of the local reses shout out uh let us know um you know we're definitely looking for spaces to have these discussions and uh, <laughs> you know we chose this well do you want to share a little bit why we chose this because i think you it was your <laughs> i was asked i think i asked you do you know any places uh <laughs> <laughs> do you know any places where there's lots of karens <laughs> Well, sure, actually. Uh, so uh, we're in a coffee shop. I won't uh, necessarily name it, but it's in a very affluent neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, and as coffee shops go, it's, it's a really trendy one. And uh, I think it's kind of ironic that we're here talking about white racism in a place that's kind of perpetuated by majority of people that are white. Yes. Yeah, well, and uh, since we sat here, we, you know, had to have a little bit of a recap, you know, to prime our conversation on our topics. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things that happened is that there were uh, several white folks sitting in our vicinity when we first started here. And uh, as time seems to go on, uh, <laughs> we seem to be scaring off the white folks <laughs> over and over again. Um, and... Uh, um, it sounds funny, but I gotta tell you, I'm actually very scared. I'm very afraid. This is a vulnerable place for me. Uh, my butterflies are really, you know, crazy. And uh, you know, one of the specific experiences that we've had, we're just sitting in a coffee shop, uh, like we we're saying, and uh, there was a really pretty, uh, very polite, very nice white girl sitting next to us. Can you confirm this for me, Steve? Absolutely. In fact. Two more white people just moved away from us, too, because we used that word, racism. <laughs> and so I think it, uh, it obviously, it's, it's a word that people are really uncomfortable with. Yeah. Especially us white folks. Yes, for real. And um, so, you know, we had an interesting experience here. We were sitting next to, we had to run an extension cord to uh, run power to our interface. And uh, this uh, really pretty, very nice, very polite, very well-spoken uh, white person, white girl next to us, white woman, uh, you know, even complimented me on how polite I was when I was asking to get through. And our experiences of that uh, situation were quite uh, different. Do you maybe want to describe a little bit? Uh, we kind of had to have a little bit of a debrief even before we started this podcast. Uh, recording. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what you've seen happen in that situation or even what you didn't see and you're trying to understand now? Sure. I think uh, it's, it's actually what I didn't see. So I should actually add that there was a, a gentleman, an older gentleman, 
that was sitting behind us. Uh, and I noticed his mannerisms and postures when we were chatting about her, but I totally missed the young woman that was sitting beside us. Uh, well, you didn't, you didn't miss her uh, necessarily. You missed the hostility that I was receiving and that I was feeling from her and even the fear that I was experiencing and not even looking right. at her. Um, like you were well aware of her, uh, but uh, you didn't know that I was experiencing that fear and that anxiety and that hostility from her. Yeah, absolutely. It was. It was. Uh, I wasn't actually paying attention. My apologies on that because I think okay, that's well, a. That's on, a. Hold on a sec, though. You couldn't have paid attention to it. Like you weren't. There's no way you could have known that that was happening. Is that? Uh, well, I wasn't paying attention to to your mannerisms okay. and your posturing, and so I just want to mention that I that uh, this is a good example where my place on the continuum. Of, of, of the hi uh, your, when you say the hierarchy, you mean hierarchy, the hierarchy, hierarchy. Whereas as a white male, I'm a lot higher on that hierarchy than the young woman was. Whereas the gentleman that was sitting behind us, I actually could feel that and notice that right away yes. because we were equals. So to me, that just is a good example where my power sometimes uh, sometimes blinds me to what exactly is occurring. I'm not seeing it. My eyes aren't open enough. And this qualifier sometimes might be a little bit s strong, but uh, you know, I do believe that power like probably always blinds you until you've had some sort of experience, like what we're going through right now, to try and clarify that. So you know, uh, just to say that, and you know, um, yeah, I find that very interesting that you know you felt the hostility from the other white man. Uh, but you did not feel the hostility from the white woman. This is, you know, sociologically a very interesting thing. Uh, and I felt both of them. You know what I mean? Yes. I felt fear from both of them. I could feel his hostility. I didn't, I, I'm facing away from him. And uh, when he was packing up, I could feel that energy, that tension from him. And uh, which I feel is, is a, a great segue into our next topic. Uh, which is uh, there's a film uh, documentary that you asked me to watch and uh, when you originally brought it up with me uh, do you remember what you told me I mean I'm gonna quote you but uh, do you remember what you said to me about that uh, show no but go ahead <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will <laughs> this just gives me anxiety but it's kind of fun um, so uh, Steve, the way you put it to me was that, you know, this, m this film, folks might have checked it out. Uh, it's called Deconstructing Karen. I guess maybe I'll give a quick uh, description of it. So um, Regina Jackson and another lady, I can't remember her name. Uh, she's South Asian Indian. Um, they host these dinner parties um, and they're called Race to Dinner. That's what they call them. And uh, they, uh, Regina Jackson is a black woman um, and like I said, co-hosts these dinners with a South Asian Indian woman, brown woman, and uh, they invite white women to come to uh, the table and break bread and have dinner and talk about race. And uh, <laughs> the very interesting sort of sociological patterns emerge 
And uh, I think their premise, you know, when I was listening to either the trailer or they also did a Dr. Phil show, which I, there should be a sequel coming out this month. We're recording in uh, January. There's, um, they, uh, they said, you know, they're doing this because white women are on a position in the social hierarchy to uh, shift things that, you know, if white women decided to start doing something about race, that a lot of things could shift. And, uh, you know, that was sort of the premise of this. And what you said to me at the beginning of it was that, you know, I want you to watch this. Uh, your assessment of it was that you liked the idea of it, of talking about race, but that you uh, thought it was too aggressive and uh, that there was basically, you know, you didn't say this, but what I heard and what you were saying was that their approach was wrong. There's got to be a better way of doing that. And uh, I did disagree with you, even though I hadn't watched it, uh, if you recall. Before I even watched it, I disagreed with you. And But you gave me an example, which I, I uh, you know, we talked about of why it sort of sat wrong with you. And it was a teaching moment you know, for, for both of us, you know, to understand sort of how white people respond to racism and how, um, you know, you, well, you were doing it. And, you know, it was a good, it was a good teaching moment. So uh, do you, do you, do you want to fill in that sort of part of the, the story there of what, hurt, like, bothered you? What triggered me? What triggered you? Sure. If that's the right word. Um, I think part of it, when uh, it was a very interesting, and I really encourage people to actually watch it. Uh, it's a real eye-opener. But for me, I think it was a comment uh, that uh, I think Regina said is, is, and don't you dare cry at this table. Yeah. Uh, and for and me, where did that bring you? Well, it kind of brought me back to a personal experience I had when I was really young. And I used to, when I was brought up in a very strong, white, male-dominated society, uh, as men were not allowed, to, we were never allowed to cry. So right. I was never allowed to cry, no matter how my feelings were. Yeah, and, and how, who was it that was telling you that? Uh, it was my parents. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so for me, it's sort of like, it's my party, I'm going to cry if I want to. Yeah. So that was that was really, you know, what you were disagreeing with is, is that... Um, you know, yes, this conversation needs to happen, but don't you ever tell anybody uh, not to cry was sort of your thing. And, um, you know, what we had talked about was that, uh, uh, like, what you're describing, and I feel like you kind of lightly described it there, uh, but I'm pretty sure there was an instance with your mom where you told me she, like, scolded you for uh, crying. There was an experience you told me about where... Uh, you were sort of called out as, uh, you know, in your um, natural feelings, you know, which is a, this is a genuine experience you were having. This is genuinely traumatizing to any any human being, doesn't matter what race uh, you are. Um, and uh, could, like, do you remember the experience I'm referring to? Oh no, absolutely. So it was a it was a fairly traumatizing experience. My father had passed away and. That's right. In a really, in a patriarchal society, crying is a form of weakness. That's right. And that was my take on it from my perspective and my personal experience. But you were kind and gentle enough to sort of provide me with a different perspective. 
Yeah. So your so your dad had passed away, and your mom said to you, "Don't cry. You don't." I don't know how she said it to you, but it was in a very mean. She just said, "Quit your crying." Yeah, and you were grieving for your dad. Absolutely, and I think, uh, yeah, and so for me, you know, that that was a real trigger for me. But having thought about it after our conversations, because every time you and I have a conversation, Sarah, I walk away and my head's just about to explode with all these different thoughts. I kind of realized that. Uh, Do you remember what I told you? Yeah, absolutely. What, for, what did I for, tell you? Well, for white liberals, we use tears and crying as a way to sort of absolve ourselves of any responsibility and accountability, yes. as though we feel bad. But on the other side of the coin is we say we feel bad, but we're still living our white lives and still benefiting from our whiteness. Yes, that's exactly it. So that was one of the things we talked about. And just to reiterate that point, that white tears, uh, you know, which some people are quite resistant, uh, people who are either white-minded or white-skinned or both, um, will uh, put resistance up to, you know, and they'll make a similar, uh, maybe not the same story as Steve, but a similar resistance as Steve was putting up, saying, you know, you should never tell anybody not to cry. But, you know, in that moment, he was actually defending white supremacy. Not, I don't think that was his intent. I don't think that was your intent. Uh, but that that's the impact of what you were doing is you were defending white tears. And the f impact of white tears is that it at you're, uh, you're supposed to be cent uh, decentralizing whiteness and white perspective and white experience when in fact uh, the loss of that power is what uh, causes white people to start to feel this way and that is actually a sociological mechanism for them to recenter their perspective, their needs, uh, their wants sort of thing. So that was one thing we talked about. And do you remember the other thing that I had sort of said to you? You need to separate your trauma from your racism. You had conflated your own trauma as a child, which is a genuine trauma, which uh, should never have happened to you. That should never have, have happened. But in that moment, you know, in our white conditioning, what you had done is you had taken somebody who was being an anti-racist, who was trying to push the envelope, the needle, to try and have a tough conversation that needed to happen, like we're having right now, um, and you, uh, you know, felt it as though it was a personal attack towards you. Would that be an uh, accurate way of describing that? Uh, I don't think, I don't know if it was a personal attack. I don't see it as an attack as much as, okay. as you being <laughs> your usual truthful self and, and to the point. But so you were, but so, okay, so. So I was defensive. But, but you were, but you, you were conflating your trauma with your racism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's part of it. And so I think, uh, Watching Deconstructing Karen is going to be a really uncomfortable experience for people, but I think we need to hear it. Or yeah. else if it's, you know, and, and that, that term by, by Robin D'Angelo, nice racism, I think is a really good example of, of how white liberals, you know, want to, be, want to be looked upon as being really nice people. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great uh, sort of segue into our next uh, topic, uh, or one of our, our next topics, which is sort of this uh, white moral compass, uh, this sort of idea that, um, you know, white people know what's right, uh, white people, you know, as an indigenous person, one way this ma has manifested is that uh, when the settlers came over here, you know, just to 
reiterate a bit of this story, uh, the first settlers that came to this land were all white. And when they met the Redskins, you know, Indian people, indigenous people, native people, uh, my people, they seen us as uncivilized. And part of the justification of taking our land, displacing us and killing us was uh, that we were savages, uh, that we didn't know what we were doing, that because we weren't Christian, you know, we weren't actual whole human beings. Um, you know, there's a Latin word called paranolius, which means um, like new land uh, in Latin, but the, con the contextual meaning of that word in Latin means uh, land uh, that is not owned by Christians. And another implication of that word uh, means that it is uh, open for the taking, in fact, rightfully uh, for the taking. And so um, because we were spiritually, physically, mentally and emotionally inferior to uh, white people, they seen us as people that needed to be saved. And so that white moral compass in terms of the history of colonialism here, you know, still exists today and that uh, woman who is sitting next to us, I bet you she would have uh, sworn up and down that she wasn't a racist, that uh, she feels comfortable, you know, um, knowing that she's a good person and all these things and has no idea that her power comes from that story. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think if you sort of take a look at history, um, the British Empire was, was infamously uh, going about the rest of the world, taking land because they thought that was their just right to do so. And to me, that's, that was the biggest con job of the last couple of centuries, where as white people, we sort of believe that we are superior and that everyone else is inferior. So uh, the word savage, I think, was used quite a bit to describe people as being opposite to what the white people were. So if you weren't white, you, you weren't the same. And, and, and us and white I, folks want to save people. That's, that's, that's part of that feeling of doing good. Mm -hmm. Right? And you still see that throughout why, history. Why is a great, that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Why do you think that white people, you know, going back to our topic of white moral compass, why do you think white people are so bent on saving and helping everybody? Uh, I think or it just... Or do, uh, do you think that? Oh, uh, think no, that? I actually believe that. I mean, if you sort of take a look at what our government's doing, right, it's, it's sort of like, we're going to do this, and, and we acknowledge the land, you know, we, we acknowledge that we took the land from you, but... I really feel that that's all part of the bigger picture, right? Is the fact that, that uh, as white people, we feel that we're superior and everyone needs to be saved. And uh, we continue to clear out our section in the cafe. Yeah, it's not good for business, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> so yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, if you look at history, that, that happened all over the world, which I find is interesting because the people that came over to North America on the Mayflower came over because they were being discriminated against because of their religious beliefs. And so really, it's just a complete circle. They come over to North America, and all of a sudden, they're superior to the people that lived here. Um, when, when Australia was actually discovered by white folks, when they came over that, it was actually prisoners, right? So Britain actually emptied so out did their... did you say Australia was discovered? Was well, we thought that we, it was discovered. It was there all the time, but it yeah, was actually. And there were already people living there. 
Yeah, and it, we were, pr and quite frankly, if it wasn't for the indigenous people that lived there, and this has proven itself again, they would never have survived. But they were actually convicts. And a majority of these people actually were in debtor's prison because at that time, if you were in debt, that was illegal and you were thrown in jail. Yeah. So I find that ironic that every time we go and we say we discover some land as though it's, it's an epiphany or something like that, we totally kind of move ourselves up that hierarchy. It's a very unconscious sometimes, but also a very conscious act. Yeah, I mean, it feels pretty intentional to me. And... Um, you know, I guess, you know, we're just kind of wrapping up the end of our conversation here, getting to the end of our time. Um, and I think it would be really important sort of to mention, uh, you know, that this is a process, that this is a journey sort of for both Stephen and I. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm mad, uncomfortable, but I'm also, you know, I'm glad we're doing this right now. And um, one of the things we had talked about when we did our production meeting, reviewing the last recording and preparing for this one, uh, was that, uh, you know, like there was a, a good example of when I asked you why you were using white culture and not white race uh, when you were explaining your position and your people, which I do think it's important to mention that white culture is a real thing. You know, I, I do think it's important that that's just said. Um, but when it, it did feel like you were sort of avoiding saying white race and I think that's what we sort of concluded and uh, I mean I'm definitely interested to hear what you have to say on that um, but also that you know when I asked you that question I pointed out to you on the wavelength you know when we were listening to the recording I said do you see all of this sort of preamble before I ask you that question that's because one I'm afraid to ask you that question uh, and folks can go back to the last episode and listen to that um, but I was padding that because I'm scared of the way you're going to react and that's not to say we don't have a relationship that doesn't mean you know all the time we've sent, spent together in the conversations don't matter but we're from different races people do not see us as the same race we have different conditioning because of the society we're in and as such you know I know that if I don't give you that padding to your ego that I'm at high risk of white lash uh, so to speak. And so um, do you remember that uh, conversation we had in the production and uh, meeting? And also, um, did you want to say anything regarding um, white culture and white race <laughs> and just being nice in general? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, I, I think the word, uh, the word nice sort of describes the way the white race wants to actually be looked upon as as really we're nice people and, and really I think it's not recognizing or acknowledging the fact that we do discriminate against people and we are racist uh, yes. and that's that's a hard thing to stomach um, why is it hard to stomach because every other racial group you know talks about you know race and is normal to talk about it. so why do you think it's hard for people from the white race to talk about race and to acknowledge that they are racist um, well, I, th I think that's a really, I think the answer is a bit more complicated than the one I'm going to give. But oh, I, but hear I, me, you woke mofo. <laughs> but I do think, though, that, that uh, using the word white culture is a nice way of identifying who we are. Yeah. Using the words white racist 
actually is, is a harsh, and it, but it also it's points out the reality of the situation. And maybe as, as white folks, we just want to hide from that and not acknowledge that. That's what it is. So one thing I actually want to bring up that I've been reading about is, is uh, I find it interesting how as a white society, we talked about all the missing children and all the children that were found in unmarked, unmarked graves, and then it kind of died out in the media, and then all of a sudden Not a it'll come up. Right? No, absolutely. I think it was a very conscious effort because we don't want to acknowledge the fact that we did that and we are responsible. So for me to say I'm a white male racist, uh, I think for me that was a real uplifting um, realization that, that even though I may consider myself to be a nice person individually, I'm still a white racist male. Well, right now you're my favorite white racist male. <laughs> Uh, with that said, you know, we're pretty much out of time here. Uh, just one other talking note we wanted to uh, mention, and you can go look up the history on this, um, but that uh, white people made potatoes white. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you can figure out what that means uh, if you want, or maybe you can reach out to us. We will have a contact at some point. This has been the Wilma Podcast. Uh, this is the second episode, and uh, thanks for joining us. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.